Chapter 3 of The Gambler by Catherine Settle Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 3 It was nearly three-quarters of an hour later that a tremendous bell clanging through the house announced that dinner had been served. A wash, a change of clothes, and a half-hour of solitude had done much for Milbank. He felt more normal, less alienated by unfamiliar surroundings than he had done in the first confused moments that had followed his arrival. The vague sense of disappointment and apprehension, the vague suspicion that Ashton had undergone an immense alteration, still tormented him, as half-apprehended evils ever torment the minds of those who see and study life as a thing apart from human nature. But the immediate effect of the feeling was less poignant. He unconsciously found himself anticipating the next glimpse of his old friend with a touch of curiosity, and when the announcement of dinner broke in upon his meditations, he was surprised at the readiness with which he obeyed the summons. His first sight of the dining-room came pleasantly to his senses, numbed by the long drive and the bare coldness of his bedroom. It was large and lofty. Three long curtained windows occupied one of its walls, while from the others numerous pictures of the dead-and-gone Ashlins looked out of their canvases from tarnished gold frames. The mahogany furniture, though of an ugly and ungainly type, was massive, and over the whole room, softening its severity and hiding the ravages of time, lay the warm red glow of a huge peat fire, and the radiance of a dozen candles set in heavy silver sconces. He stood for a moment in the doorway, agreeably conscious of the mingled shadow and light, then his attention was attracted to two figures already occupying the room. Ashton himself was standing by the hearth, his back to the fire, his feet apart, while by his side, in evident nervous embarrassment, stood a little girl of nine or ten. Instantly he saw his guest, Ashton put his hand on the child's shoulder and pushed her forward. "'Here's the youngest shoot on the old tree, James,' he cried with a laugh. "'Shake hands with him, Nance.' Somewhat uncertainly and very shyly, the child looked up and smiled. She was extremely pretty, with a gypsy-like prettiness new to Milbank. The only attribute she had inherited from her father's family was the clear olive skin. That distinguished all the Ashlins. Her dark brown hair, her deep blue eyes, her peculiarly winning smile, had all come to her from her dead mother. With an embarrassment almost equal to her own, Milbank extended his hand. The average modern child he ignored with comfortable superiority, but this small girl, with her warm smile and her overwhelming shyness, was something infinitely more different to deal with. He shifted his position uneasily. "'How do you do?' he hazarded. "'How do you do, Nance?' The little brown fingers stirred nervously in his clasp, and the child, still smiling, made some totally unintelligible reply. With a boisterous laugh, Ashton ended the situation. "'Easily know you're not a father, James,' he cried. "'Why, you'd have given her a kiss and pinched the business fifty seconds ago. "'But you're starving. Where's that scamp, Chloe? "'He turned again to the little girl who had drawn nearer to him for protection. "'She replied, but in so low a tone that Milbank heard nothing. "'A moment later he was enlightened by Ashlyn's loud voice. "'Did you ever hear of a thing like that, James?' he exclaimed. What would you say to a daughter who rides races on the strand in the dark of an October evening with the mist enough to give your horses their death? Upon my word! His face reddened. Then suddenly he paused and laughed, 
"'After all, what's bred to the bone, eh, James?' he said. "'I mean, I'd have done the same myself at fifteen. Maybe worse.' He checked himself, laughed again, then sighed. But catching Milbank's eye, he threw off the momentary depression, and turned once more to Nance. "'Tell Hannah we won't wait any longer, like a good child,' he said. "'There's no counting on that scallywag.' As the child went quickly to the door, he motioned Milbank to the table, and took his own place at its head. "'No ceremony here,' he said. "'This is Liberty Hall.' Taking up a decanter, he poured some sherry into his friend's glass, then, filling his own, drank the wine with evident satisfaction. "'Gradual decay is what we're suffering from here, James,' he went on. "'Everything in this country is too damned old. The only thing in this house that have stood it the wine and the silver— the rest, the woodwork, myself, and the linen, are unsound, as you see. He laughed again with a shade of sarcasm, and pointed to where a large hole in the damask tablecloth was only partially concealed by a splendid salt cellar of Irish silver. Accumulated time is the disease we're suffering from. It isn't the man who uses his time in this country, but the man who kills it who is master of the art of living. Oh, we're a wonderful people, James. He slowly drained and slowly refilled his glass. As he laid down the decanter, the door opened, and Nance appeared and quietly took her place at table. Almost immediately she was followed by Burke in a black coat and wearing a clean collar. For a second Milbank marvelled at the domestic arrangements that could compress a valet, a butler and a coachman into one easy-going personality. The next his attention was directed to two enormous dishes which were placed respectively before his host and himself. "'Just hermits, fair James, the product of the land,' Ashton exclaimed, as Burke uncovered the first dish, revealing a gigantic turkey. "'Will you cut yourself a shaving of ham?' With a passing sense of impotence, Milbank gazed at the great glistening ham. Then the healthy appetite that exposure to the sea air had aroused lent him courage, and he picked up a carving-knife. But the execution of the ham was destined to postponement. Scarcely had he straightened himself to the task than a quick bang of the outer door was followed by hasty steps across the hall, and the last member of the household appeared upon the scene. Almost before he saw her, Milbank was conscious of her voice, high and clear with youthful vitality, softened and rendered piquant by native intonation. "'Oh, father, such a gallop, such fun, and I won! The bay cob was nowhere near beside Polly!' "'Larry was mad!' A string of words was poured forth in irresistible excitement before she had reached the door. Once inside, she paused abruptly, her whole animated face flushing. "'Oh, I forgot!' she said in sudden naive dismay. She made a quaint picture as she stood there in the light of the candles and the fire, her slight, immature figure arrayed in a worn and old-fashioned riding habit, her hair covered by a boy's cloth cap, her fingers clasping one of her father's heavy hunting-crops. But it was neither dress nor attitude that drew Milbank's eyes from the task before him, that incontinently sent his mind back thirty years to the days when Dennis Ashlin had seemed to stand on the threshold of life and look forth as if by right divine upon the pageant of the future. There was little physical likeness between the girl brimming with youth and vitality and the hard, prematurely aged man sitting at the head of the table, but the blood that glowed in the warm olive skin, the spirit that danced and gleamed in the hazel eyes, was the same blood and the same spirit 
that had captivated Millbank more than a quarter of a century before. The unlooked-for sensation held him spellbound, but almost rudely the spell was broken. Scarcely had Clodagh's exclamation of dismay escaped her than Ashton broke into one of his boisterous laughs. "'Ha, ha, ha, forgot, did you?' he cried. "'Well, twas like you. Come here.' He put out his hand, and as he did so, a sudden expression of pride and affection softened his hard face. "'Here's the wildest scapegrace of an Ashton you've met yet, James,' he said. "'Shake hands with him, Clo,' he added in a different voice. "'He's a symbol, if you only knew it. "'He stands for the great glory we must all leave behind us. "'The glory of youth.' "'His voice sank suddenly to a lower key, and he raised his glass. "'Go on, child,' he added more quickly. "'Shake hands with him. Tell him he's welcome.' "'But Clodagh's flow of speech had been silenced. "'With a suggestion of the shyness that marked her sister, "'she came round the table as Milbank rose.' She made no remark as she proffered her hand, and she did not smile as Nance had done. Instead, her bright eyes scanned his face with a quick, questioning interest. In return, he looked at her clear skin, her level eyebrows, and proudly held head, and his awkwardness vanished as he took the slight muscular hand, still cold from the night mist. "'How do you do?' he said. "'I've been hearing of you.' Again Clodagh coloured and glanced at her father. "'What were you telling him, father?' she asked with native curiosity. Once more Ashlyn laughed loudly. "'Listen to her, James,' he said banteringly. "'Her conscience is troubling her. She knows that it's hard to speak well of her. Isn't that it, Scamp? Confess now!' Clodagh had again passed round the table, and having thrown her whip and cap into a chair, had seated herself without ceremony in the vacant place that awaited her. "'Indeed it isn't,' she replied with immense unconcern but an instant later she repeated her question. "'What was it, father? Can't you tell me?' Ashlyn lifted his glass and studied the light through his sherry. "'Ah, now, listen to her, James,' he exclaimed again delightedly. "'And women will tell you they aren't inquisitive.' Floder flushed. The little sister, seeing the flush, was suddenly moved to assert herself. "'Twasn't anything, Clo,' she said quickly. "'He only said you were a scallywag.' Then, as all eyes turned in her direction, she subsided abruptly into confused silence. "'There you are again, James. Look at the way they stick together. A poor man hasn't the ghost of a chance when two of them join forces. One of them ought to have been a boy, if only for the sake of equality.' He shook his head and laughed afresh, while Burke deposited the last plate upon the table, and dinner began in earnest. That dinner, like his drive from Mosquia, was an experience to Milbank. More than once his eyes travelled involuntarily from the candlelit table, with its suggestion of another and an earlier era, to the high walls where the fire cast long shafts of ruddy light and long tongues of shadow upon Ashlyn's ancestors, painted in garments of silk and lace, that had once found a setting in this same sombre room. There was something strangely analogous in these dead men and women and their living representatives— the thought recurred to him again and again, as he yielded to the pleasant influences of good wine and wholesome food pressed upon him with unceasing hospitality. It was not the first time he pandered to his taste for past things by comparing a man with his forefathers, but the result had never proved quite so profitable. In their uncommon setting, Ashlyn and his children would have appealed to the most unobservant as uncommon types. Viewed by the eyes of a student, they became something more, 
they became types of an uncommon race, of an uncommon class. With the spur of the old fascination and the goad of the new-born misgiving, he glanced again, and yet again, from his host's hard, handsome features to the pictures, from the pictures to the warm-coloured faces of the children. The study was absorbing. It supplied him with an agreeable undercurrent of interest, while the ham and turkey were removed, and Ashlyn, with much dexterity, distributed portions of an immense apple pie, deluged in cream. It still occupied his mind when, cheese having been placed upon the table and partaken of, Burke proceeded to remove the cloth. At the moment that the polished surface of the table was laid bare, his glance, temporarily distracted from its study of the nearer pictures, was attracted and arrested by one portrait that hung in partial shadow above the carved chimney-piece. It was the picture of a tall, slight boy of sixteen or seventeen years, dressed in the black satin knee-breeches, the diamond shoe-buckles and powdered queue of a past generation. Something in the pose of this painted figure, something in the youthful face, caught and held his attention. In unconscious scrutiny, he leant forward to study the shadowed features. Then Ashlyn, suddenly aware of his interest, leant across the table. "'That was what I meant, James, by saying one of them should have been a boy,' he said sharply. "'Haven't I justification?' He nodded, half earnestly, half in malicious humour, towards the picture above the fire. For a moment Milbank was at a loss. Then all at once he comprehended his host's meaning. His gaze dropped from the picture to Clodagh, sitting below it. Above the dark riding habit and above the satin coat, it seemed that the same olive skin, the same level eyebrows and clear hazel eyes confronted him. "'I see,' he said quietly. "'I see. A very peculiar case of family likeness.' He spoke affably, casually, in all innocence. But scarcely had the words left his lips than he precipitately wished them back. With a loud laugh, Ashton struck the table with his hand. "'Ah, good!' he exclaimed. "'Good! Now, Clare, what have you got to say?' But with a gesture quite as vehement as his own, the girl raised her head. "'I say that it's not true,' she said. "'It isn't true. I'm not like him.' She glanced from her father to Milbank with suddenly kindling eyes. "'I'm not like him,' she repeated. "'I won't be like him.' Ashton leant back quickly in his chair. He was still laughing, but a shade of temper was audible in the laugh. "'Do you hear that, James?' he said. "'We of the present generation are altogether too good for the past. A slip of a girl nowadays thinks herself vastly superior to a great-great-grandfather who is the finest horseman and the most open-handed man in Munster. That's the attitude of today.' He moved aside as Burke re-entered the room and laid a decanter of port and two glasses on the shining mahogany table. "'My great-grandfather, Antony Ashlyn,' he went on deliberately, "'was as fine a specimen of the Irish gentleman as ever lived. I don't care who denies it. Have a glass of port, James? An appreciation of good wine was the one thing he left his descendants.' There was an awkward silence while he filled the two glasses and pushed one towards his guest. But Milbank's ease of mind had already been upset. He held no key to the disconcerting situation, and it puzzled and perplexed him, as his first impression of his old friend had done. Both possessed elements that he vaguely knew to be hidden from his sight, out of focus from his present point of view. For a space he sat warily fingering his glass, but making no attempt to drink. 
without openly seeming to observe it, he was conscious of Ashton's half-humorous, half-aggressive mood, of the nervous attitude of the younger girl, and of Clodagh's flushed face. To a newly-arrived guest, the position was strained. With growing embarrassment, he glanced from the rich, dark wine in his glass to its reflection in the polished surface of the table. Finally, the awkwardness of the prolonged silence moved him to speech. A great grandfather who was a judge of wine is always worthy of consideration, he murmured amiably as he lifted the glass to his lips. I'm afraid mine was a teetotaler. But his feeble attempt at humour was not destined to be successful. It drew a laugh from his host, but it was a laugh that found no echo. You're right, James, Ashton cried. By Jupiter, you're right. Antony Ashton was the finest man in the county, and I'm proud of him. He was the worst man in the country, and the greatest fool. The words, so sudden and unexpected, came from Clodagh. For several seconds she had been sitting absolutely still, but now she lifted her head again, her flushed face glowing, her bright eyes alight with the quick enthusiasm, the hot temper that she had inherited from her race. With a swift movement she turned from her father to Milbank. "'Do you think it's great to be a fool and a gambler?' she demanded. Ashton set down his glass noisily. "'Antony Ashton was no gambler,' he said. "'He was a sportsman.' Clodagh's lip curled. "'A sportsman?' she exclaimed. "'Is it sport to keep gamecocks, to play cards and throw dice, "'to squander money that belongs to other people, "'to mortgage your property and to, 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 to kill your old brother?' "'The last words burst from her impetuously, impulsively. "'Then suddenly she paused, shocked by her own daring. "'The silence that followed was short. "'With an equal impetuosity, Ashton pushed back his chair and rose. "'By God, Clare, that's going too far,' he cried. I'll not have my great-great-grandfather called a murderer. All the same, he killed his brother. In a duel, gentlemen had to fight in those days. Because of cards, because they quarrelled over cards. Then, with a fresh change of expression, she appealed again to Milbank. Do you think that's sport, she asked, to get no good out of ordinary things, to get no pleasure out of dogs or horses, except the pleasure of making them fight or race so that you can bet on the one you think best? She stopped breathlessly, and Milbank, desperately at her loss, gazed from one angry, excited face to the other. But he was saved the trouble of finding an answer, for immediately Clodagh ceased to speak, Ashlyn's loud laugh broke in again. "'Bravo!' he cried boisterously. "'All the eloquence and all the lack of logic of your sex. But don't put these propositions to Milbank. Put them to yourself when you've reached his age.' If you can't tell at fifty-five why poor human creatures play and kill and make fools of themselves, you'll have been a very lucky woman. For an instant his voice dropped. The despondency, the restless ennui that Milbank had previously noticed, falling like a brief shadow over his anger. But the lapse was brief. With another laugh and a shrug of the shoulders, he turned suddenly and, crossing the room, opened the door. Burke, he called loudly across the hall, Burke, bring more candles and another bottle of porter, and the cards. At the words, Clodagh rose. Father! she exclaimed below her breath. Then her voice faltered. The involuntary note of protest and appeal was checked by some other emotion. With a swift movement she crossed the hearth, picked up her whip and cap, and without another glance or word, walked out of the room, 
followed noiselessly by Nance. Ashling continued to stand by the door until the figures of his children had disappeared. Then he turned back into the room. James, he said suddenly, perhaps you don't think of it, but one share of that child's head is more precious to me than life. She's an Ashlyn to the tips of her fingers. She's the whole race of us in one. The very way she repudiates us is proof enough for any man. I tell you, the whole lot of us, lock, stock and barrel, are looking at you out of her eyes. Again he paused. Then again he shook off his passing seriousness with nervous excitability, reseating himself at the table as Burke entered. "'Ah, here we are,' he cried. "'Here we are. Come along, Burke, and show the light of heaven to us. Now, James, for any stakes you like and at any game, what shall it be? Piquet? Or will we say Euchre, for the sake of the days that are dead and gone? Very well. Euchre let it be, for any stakes you like. It's a land of beggars, but by gad you'll find us game.' Pass me your glass for another taste of port. End of chapter 3